When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, hmm, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. As the midterm elections approach, the Democrats become increasingly deranged. We'll review their history of violence as a tactic in the last election. The opposition media, who got almost everything wrong in 2016, is hyping a coming blue wave. We'll take a look at the current field of battle for the GOP. And the president's own lawyer is now trying to turn state's evidence against him. Is that even allowed? With these stories and more from a nationalist perspective, I'm Jim Dawes, and this is America First Radio's Daily Brief. And thank you for joining America First Radio. This conversation never ends. You can follow us on Twitter at AmFirstRadio and friend us on Facebook at America First Radio with Jim Dawes. Then you can share it with your friends, engage the host and our audience, and you'll get early notifications as soon as these shows are posted. America First Radio is broadcast each weeknight at 11 p.m. Eastern on the new Mojo 5.0 talk station on Dash Radio and on the Talk America Radio Network, the new dominant force in conservative talk radio. But if you miss a broadcast, you can always listen on demand on your favorite podcast directory, including iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, and YouTube, and Blueberry, and a whole bunch of others. But if you miss a broadcast, you can always go directly to our website at AmericaFirstRadio.com and uh, find the current broadcast and all the archives. Well, one of the tough things about uh, having a one-hour daily brief is that the news in the era of Trump uh, is so steady and heavy that uh, oftentimes you're unable to fit all of it in one hour. And so a lot of times stories uh, you may have noticed get pushed off of the show and uh, and then I have to try to squeeze them in in a coming news cycle in hopes uh, that there is a lull. But there was a story that happened last week that I really did not want to let pass, and that was the story about the uh, the uh, publisher of the New York Times, A.G. Salzberger uh, III. He's uh, a long line of the Salzberger family. He's a 37-year-old uh, young man who uh, spent most of his formative years, um, you know, laying about and uh, really not engaged in, in much. Uh, but he is the next in line, and he took over the uh, paper from his father, uh, A.G. Salzberger II, who took it over from his father, Pinch Salzberger. They are uh, in a long line of uh, uh, leftist, um, uh, ideologically. Uh, the current publisher's father was uh, a radical in the late 60s who, um, who uh, associated with the Black Panthers and the anti-war movement and, uh, you know, made a big um, scene of him uh, um, engaged in anti-establishment activities. Uh, but A.G. Schultzberger uh, wanted to meet with the president. The president uh, was happy to uh, talk to him there at his, um, his country club in, uh, in New Jersey. 
Um, and afterwards, the president tweeted out, as he normally does, that he met with Salzberger and that uh, they had discussed fake news and the term of, um, you know, enemy of the American people that uh, the, the press so strenuously objects to. And Salzberger's point meeting with the president is that uh, he believed that this, uh, this term, the enemy of the American people, that has uh, really gained a lot of traction for good reason, because it strikes as the truth, especially if you read the New York Times and uh, the Washington Post and the other mainstream papers, you see that almost every issue, uh, they're adverse to the interests of the American people. They argue for open borders. They argue... Um, against uh, the president's efforts to rebalance our trade relationships every day now. Uh, they've got a raft of stories in there uh, trying to undermine the position of this president to push back against uh, uh, the disastrous trade policies uh, that we have with China. And you, you, have to, you, you have to really wonder about that. We know they're globalists, but uh, when you have an emerging uh, communist dictatorship that is uh, looking to displace you as uh, uh, the world's leader uh, in uh, military and economic uh, arenas, then it makes you wonder what, what exactly is their agenda over there. But this paper, if you read it, uh, it uh, the Times in particular, is just so unhinged and deranged that it, uh, it makes you shake your head. They, they really, uh, around the clock, they're working to undermine traditional American culture and uh, and history, um, even to the point, you know, where crazy ideas like uh, letting men into public bathrooms with your wives and daughters um, is accepted over there as if it's just normal. So Schultzberger meets with uh, the president and he brings up these concerns about uh, this term, the enemy of the American people, resulting in violence against his reporters. Well, you know, that's rich coming from the New York Times, who, uh, who has done so much to promote this atmosphere of intolerance and, uh, and violence. You'll recall back during the campaign, uh, they ran an op-ed piece, a long, thoughtful a uh, scholarly piece on whether it's okay to punch a Nazi. And, of course, the New York Times and its imprimatur um, uh, that they put on this this column decided, yes, uh, it, it is okay. It's even um, admirable to punch a Nazi. Now, if there were any real Nazis uh, goose-stepping around here, I might be able to get behind that. But their, their definition of Nazi is a Trump supporter. Actually, their definition of Nazi is anybody that disagrees with their far-left social agenda. And they've been, uh, you know, vilifying people, calling them traitors and spies and dupes and, um, you know, backwards and morally retarded and all of this for years and years and years. They are, in fact, enemies of the broad cross-section of the American people. Uh, they're, they, they're looking to displace them uh, by pushing for open borders. They're looking to uh, disenfranchise them by uh, giving um, uh, the vote to illegal immigrants and fighting uh, tooth and nail against any sort of uh, voter ID act. They're looking to reduce their standard of living 
uh, by supporting these disastrous trade deals. They're basically looking to destroy the American nation. So I think the uh, the term "enemy of the American people" is uh, is perfectly apropos. And whether or not this um, promotes violence, as I said, that's really rich coming from the uh, the same New York Times that uh, has been flogging and really hyping this uh, this Black Lives Matter frenzy, uh, a dishonest, bogus argument that says that somehow police officers in our country are uh, targeting black people for killings. And, and they, they report all of these things in a, in a very uh, a narrow spectrum. So, you know, if, uh, if there's any uh, shooting of a, a police officer uh, and uh, a perpetrator and the police officer is white and the perpetrator is black, then they highlight that and they flog it for days. And it happens throughout the country because uh, inner city crime is a, a real issue. They never get to the, the bottom line of the uh, statistics that backs all this up that says that uh, an unarmed black person having an interaction with a police officer is actually less likely to be shot uh, than a white person. But they, they, uh, they gave them a platform. They allowed their uh, editorial pages uh, to, to dupe the American people. They, they fanned the flames of this movement that was already um, right close to the edge. And what we saw as resulted was the assassination of about a dozen cops, at least, that we can, uh, that we can lay right at the doorstep of this Black Lives Matter movement. There were five police officers in uh, Dallas, Texas, that were assassinated at a Black Lives Matters march on top of uh, about a half a dozen more that were, um, that were wounded in that event. There were three police officers in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, that were assassinated along with a couple of others that were shot. There were those two uh, uh, police officers in New York City that were sitting in their car when this Black Lives Matter uh, fanatic assassinated them couple in Des Moines, uh, one in San Diego. This thing uh, uh, took a life of its own. You don't see the New York Times taking responsibility or, or behaving responsibly when it comes to this, or even uh, you know trying to tamp down or condemn the violence against police officers. And what it resulted in was, uh, as I said, a frenzy. Here's a clip uh, from a, a, a march right down um, one of the main thoroughfares. I think this is Fifth Avenue in New York City. I think that's actually where the New York Times has its headquarters building. And, um, and this may have been a clue to them what, what kind of atmosphere that they were creating. What do we want? Dead cops. When do we want it now? Now, this was not some, um, you know, anomaly. This was uh, pretty regular at the height of this frenzy that the, help, the New York Times helped to, uh, to cultivate. Here's a, another example of one of these, uh, these demonstrations. So you would have thought that the New York Times may have backed off of this and rethought their position, but no. 
um, they, uh, they, they continued to flog this until uh, the, the completely predictable consequence occurred with the assassination of these officers. And now A.G. Schultzberger, he's afraid that his, uh, his, police, his uh, reporters are going to be uh, vilified because they're being called enemies of the American people. Well, I say if the shoe fits, wear it. We're going to run out to a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about this right after these messages on America First Radio. So Schultzberger meets with the president uh, there in New Jersey. Um, he says, my main purpose for accepting the meeting was to raise concerns about the president's deeply troubling anti-press rhetoric. I told the president directly that I thought his language was not just divisive, but increasingly dangerous. I told him that although the phrase fake news is untrue and harmful, I'm far more concerned about his labeling journalists as the enemy of the people. I warned that this inflammatory language is contributing to a rise in threats against journalists and, and will lead to violence. I repeatedly stress that particularly abroad, the president's rhetoric is being used by some regimes to justify sweeping crackdowns on journalists. He goes on to say, throughout the conversation, I emphasize that the president, like previous presidents, was upset with the coverage of his administration. He could, of course, he was a free uh, of course, to tell the world, well, that's very generous of you, Mr. Salzberger. Now, this is this is unbelievable. This guy's talking about, well, this is putting our our journalists at risk. Well, think about the risk that they're creating with this over-the-top, unhinged, dishonest coverage of the president that basically talks about him being uh, another Hitler, a, a dictator, um threatening freedom of the press and, and uh, all of these other freedoms, uh, putting together this, this lie that uh, you know children are being put in cages on the border and that uh, separating uh, children from their parents when they're arrested illegally crossing the border is somehow different than American citizens get uh, all over this country are treated. Uh, and, and that's... Uh, you know, that narrative that they put together, totally dishonest, was uh, just nearly drove these uh, fragile left-wing nut jobs right over the edge. Well, how about the danger that this is presenting uh, to the American president? You know, it, <laughs> being president of the United States is a fairly dangerous job. If you look at, uh, we've had 45 presidents. How many have been assassinated? One, two, three, four, five. Five or six have been assassinated out of those 45. And um, certainly there are deranged people out there that are taking their cues from the New York Times that uh, if, if, in fact, Trump and his supporters really are Nazis, they were responsible for the, uh, the death of, um, what, about 20 million people during World War II, then you're, you're taking your cue and your marching orders for the New York Times. And we've seen this in the streets during the campaign in Anaheim, California, where they, uh, they had riots uh, because of a, a Trump rally 
Um, in Washington, D.C., during the inauguration, there were riots and burnings and uh, attacks on, on innocent uh, people trying to attend the inauguration. New York, we saw it. Uh, Washington, D.C., San Jose, California, Calif uh, Chicago, Illinois, and much of this was actually coordinated by the Democrat Party. You didn't see the New York Times overly concerned about violence against Trump supporters. As, uh, as the Democrat National Committee was using subcontractors to send instigators into Trump rallies to provoke violence, they used that storyline to say that uh, Trump supporters were violent because when people got up in their face spitting and yelling, uh, that they pushed back. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a case um, out of the San Jose riots where um, the chief of police and the mayor out there coordinated their response to a Trump rally to uh, push the two sides together, which resulted in predictable consequences. Uh, these left-wingers beating uh, Trump supporters as they were trying to leave the, uh, uh, the uh, Civic Center there in San Jose. That, uh, that case, as a matter of fact, has recently been given the green light by none other than the Ninth Circuit Court to proceed to trial. Harmeet uh, Dillon, the chair of the Republican Party in California, also a lawyer, is suing the city of San Jose. Here's a clip uh, from her appearance on Fox talking about this very issue. Take our viewers back. This was June 2016, a few months before the 2016 election. Um, and this was obviously a rally for Trump supporters. Tell people what happened after that. Sure. Well, we know that California is the epicenter of the resistance, but even there, we didn't expect this to happen. On June 2nd, before uh, uh, now President Trump became the nominee, there was a rally. There were several thousand attendees. I did the Pledge of Allegiance at this event, and it was a great event. As we were leaving, however, is when it became ugly. The police directed all of the people leaving the event into a ongoing riot that was occurring with, uh, you know, violent protesters armed with sticks and, you know, you know, other implements. And several of my clients were hit with bag of rocks, sucker punched, chased, had their clothes torn off, spit on, uh, had eggs thrown at them. You know, and the the clients in this case who are class representatives range from their young teens up to ladies in their 70s. It was, it was quite an outrageous scene there that day. And the police stood there and did nothing after barring the exits to safety. And so under the Ninth stand down law, order, there's what's called a state-created danger doctrine. And if you put people into danger, then the government is responsible for that. So you're saying that the police didn't step in. You say this goes all the way to the top, that this was a leadership problem. Uh, what do you mean by that, that the city intended for this to happen? Well, the mayor of San Jose, Sam Licardo, tweeted that, uh, you know, Trump was responsible for this violence, which is outrageous. And kind of the city officials made clear that this wasn't really a welcome event there. And the fact that you had 250 armed police forcing people into the most dangerous way to get out of the event and then standing there and watching, uh, that is uh, what, you know, the Ninth Circuit agreed with me that if the facts as alleged are true, and frankly, there are thousands of news reports out there you can see on YouTube that show it is true, uh, that is uh, unconstitutional. It is a violation of due process to do that to American citizens. And so we hope to get recompense, not just for the 20 named plaintiffs, but also for a whole class of people who were there that day. Well, especially in California, you've seen a lot of this, these so-called stand-down orders. You saw the stand-down order on full display in Charlottesville, Virginia as well, where these uh, left-wing Democrat mayors of these cities basically 
uh, tell their police not to not to intervene and uh, and and protect the Trump supporters. Basically, let them get what they deserve in their eyes. And uh, and this is a case that's actually winding its way through the courts. I think a similar case could be made in Anaheim, and uh, certainly in Berkeley, where the um, the police uh, just stood by and uh, basically watched while Trump supporters uh, were attacked uh, and uh, and beaten unconscious. And over and over again, especially in California, we've seen Antifa marching in the streets with their masks. They're not unmasked. They're not, uh, their weapons aren't taken away. They aren't arrested in mass. They came down to the south and tried that uh, in Auburn, Alabama, and city of Atlanta. And it was, it was, uh, it was quashed very quickly. They just uh, made them take off their mask because wearing a mask while the commission of a crime is illegal. So they made them take off their mask and uh, and ditch their weapons, and uh, and um, you know order was restored. But uh, in California, an argument can be made, and I think the the courts will have to hear this, that uh, these were purposeful tactics, uh, political tactics by these Democrat mayors. I want to play one more clip for you just to sort of encapsulate uh, this Black Lives Matter movement that um, it, it, it will it will make it will make its return. You remember last uh, uh, in 2016 or 2000. Yeah, 2016 of the Democrat National Committee. Uh, the Demo- the Black Lives Matter movement uh, people were in uh, uh, were in uh, great numbers at the convention. And they had barred all police officers in uniform from the from the floor of the convention. Well, the news media got word of that, and of course, it made the Democrats look bad, which is the only thing that makes them uh, behave uh, in a in a um, reasonable manner. And so they organized a uh, um, um, a salute to honor the police officers on stage, and when they did. The police officers that they called up were booed and cursed, and Black Lives Matter chants uh, broke out. Uh, so I'm not going to have time for this clip, but uh, you you know what the Black Lives Matter movement is all about. Let's see. I'm going to play you just a little bit of it. I just wanted uh, one, one other uh, sorry, sorry, thing. Sorry, sorry. The, uh, they're making a big hullabaloo. No, I'm going to have to play it for you when we get back. We'll run out to a break. We'll play this clip for you when we get back, and then we'll talk about uh, whether or not there's going to be a blue wave in the midterms or not, right after these messages on America First Radio. The people that uh, are the uh, and they're um, they're 
cubicles in the New York Times and the Washington Post and uh, in these uh, these news centers that are uh, romanticizing and uh, and uh, making um, you know heroes of these Black Lives Matter uh, activists have uh, have never been out on the streets during uh, some of these uh, uh, these unrest and seen this stuff firsthand. They do not appreciate what these police officers deal with, the the hatred and uh, resentment that is uh, directed toward them. And for A.G. Schultzberger to go up there and, and uh, beg the president to stop calling them for what they are because of these types of um, stories that they're constantly flogging, these narratives that they, uh, that they love to put together, these social justice narratives, is laughable. I've got one more clip I want to uh, play for you before we move on from this topic. This is a, a Black Lives Matter activist in San Diego that um, was just prior to uh, a San Diego officer being uh, shot to death. Um, they weren't able to uh, hang it on the Black Lives Matter movement uh, conclusively because, you know, once one of these things happens and the lawyers step in, they, they try to tamp down uh, the real motivation. But uh, right after... Uh, this protest, a uh, San Diego police officer was assassinated sitting in his car. I just wanted uh, uh, one, one other uh, sorry, thing. Sorry, sorry. The, uh, they're making a big hullabaloo over what happened to the police right. in, in Dallas. And I feel, uh, you know, it's a human sympathy for anyone who gets killed, who didn't stand out as an individual deserving it. But we have to remember, these police form up an occupation army that's what they are they're an occupation army and they're wearing a certain uniform and they have declared a war against black america they have declared a war against america they, they enforce, this is what they enforce this is what they do these are the police officers that uh, enforce the law and keep the peace in these these uh, very high crime areas that take their lives in their own hands every time they go out on the street to try to protect law-abiding citizens. And this Black Lives Matter activist hack characterizes them as an occupation force. Uniform, and they have declared a war against Black America. They have declared a war against America. They, they enforce, this is what they enforce. This is what they do. Now, you can say, well, that cop, he didn't do anything, but he's wearing a uniform. Now, maybe it would be better if somebody went to the particular cops that did the shooting and administered justice because we know that... Maybe it would be better if they went to the particular cop and administered justice. If somebody went to the particular cops that did the shooting and administered justice because we know that the courts are not going to do that. That's unbelievable. But, you, you know, this, this kind of um, narrative is being given currency in the, um, the media, and I have no uh, reluctance whatsoever to call them what they are. They have become truly the enemy of the American people. So, um, you know, this blue wave is back. Uh, back, at, back in the spring, um, the media was uh, flogging this story, saying there was a blue wave coming that was going to sweep the Republicans from the House of Representatives so that uh, we could proceed with these impeachment hearings. 
to to get Trump out of there, and that uh, very they may even very well uh, take over the Senate. Impeachment, ladies and gentlemen, is not going anywhere. Even if uh, the Republicans were to lose the House, and the president was to be impeached by a majority vote in the House, it would have to go to the Senate, where there would be a two-thirds vote required to remove him from office. He has done nothing. There has never been a president in the history of our country that has been more uh, more thoroughly investigated and um, uh, persecuted by the law enforcement community than this this current president. If they haven't found anything by now, you can pretty much bet that they're not going to find anything. And the reason you know that they haven't found anything is because it would have leaked. But these Beltway um, prognosticators, the same Beltway prognosticators that said there was no way in hell that Donald Trump was ever going to become president, uh, they back in uh, the early part of 2018, they were saying that there was a blue wave coming, and then uh, the the polls turned around and they started uh, uh, tamping down their rhetoric a little bit. But now they're back at it. CNN, for example, is uh, saying every sign is pointing to a Democratic wave in November, and this is just uh, uh, wishful thinking on behalf of the uh, of the Democrats. These are the same discredited forecasters, um, uh, paid consultants, uh, mercenary pollsters that will produce a poll uh, to say whatever uh, their client wants it to say. As I said, that got everything wrong in 2016. I've got a clip for you. Let's see if we've got time. Um, this is a good one. This is Dr. Steve Turley. If you've not heard from him, he comes... Uh, at issues from a conservative nationalist point of view and a, from a Christian perspective. He's on, uh, he's on YouTube, and I recommend him highly to us, Dr. Steve Turley. All right there, everyone. The Democrats' so-called blue wave is vanishing as millennials are turning away from them. That's what we'll be talking about on today's video. I'm sure you're all, of course, familiar with the so-called blue wave that's been predicted by pundits and pollsters alike for the upcoming 2018 elections where the Democrats are supposed to just absolutely sweep virtually all contested elections throughout the nation to retake the House, maybe even the Senate, and then uh, begin uh, impeachment proceedings against a completely incompetent and unfit President Trump. That's been the narrative really since January of 2017 when uh, Trump was inaugurated. Well, now we're getting some data that shows that this supposed blue wave is beginning to utterly fizzle with the potential loss of one of the Democrats' key voting constituencies, and that would be millennials. Now, Democrats draw from basically three voting constituencies, okay? Their votes come from an ethnic enclave made up of blacks and Hispanics. I mean, blacks are voting, for example, up to around 95, 98% Democrat. Uh, their votes come from women, the so-called gender gap for Republicans. I mean, it's specifically coming primarily from young single women. Married women with children actually tend to vote Republicans, I understand it. But certainly there's a gender gap with single, young single women who vote overwhelmingly uh, Democrat. And uh, their votes come from millennials. Now, Obama won millennials by 60%. Min millennials are traditionally a very, very reliable voting bloc. For the Democrats. Well, now what we're seeing here is that the millennial leg from this three-legged stool is in fact broken. Uh, this is an extraordinary 
um, development here. A new poll came out that sampled, get this, this poll sampled 16,000 registered voters between the ages of 18 to 34. 16,000. So the margin of error here is very, very minimal as far as polls go. And they found that their support for the Democrats has plunged by nearly 10 percentage points to around 45, 46%. Now here's the real kicker. When given a generic choice between a Democrat and a Republican candidate for the upcoming 2018 midterm elections, millennials actually split evenly, about 39 and 39. Uh, you just, you have to let this hit you. This is one of the major voting constituencies for the Democratic Party, and on a generic ballot between Democrat and Republican, they split evenly. What that says to put the matter rather bluntly is that the Democrats are losing or may have in fact already completely lost one of their three major voting constituencies. And I can tell you that this is not just a phenomena that uh, is affecting the United States. All across Europe, um, millennials are turning their back on these leftist parties and, and realizing that basically the governing elite are taking um, taking their future for granted and, and basically uh, doing everything they can to destroy their their nations and uh, a major part of the millennials I have a, a, a real uh, good idea which ones of the millennials have have caught on to that as the uh, the Democrats and their uh, their handmaidens in the uh, media continually uh, and relentlessly vilify. Uh, white people and make them out to be social or um, moral retards, uh, while at the same time uh, supporting open borders. I think what these millennials are experiencing is, uh, is for the first time in many of their lives, certainly in their adult lives, uh, is a prosperous economy. About 60% of the people polled uh, say that they like the way this president is handling the economy, and there's no well, there's no wonder. We've got 4.1 GDP for the first time in, in many years. Uh, we're on track to do about 3.5 uh, GDP for, uh, for the year. Um, and the job market that these millennials are entering into, uh, especially the ones coming out of college, is, uh, is finally looking up after literally decades of just a disastrous job market for the, uh, for the emerging generations. Uh, they're able to get a job. They're able to, uh, you know, uh, start living the American dream, move out of their parents' basement, and uh, and buy a car and uh, and have some prospects. And the last thing that these millennials want to do is return uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi with their social justice warrior agenda uh, to so they can get in there and withdraw this tax cut and plunge us right back into the same ditch. That Barack Obama had us uh, in for for eight years, so I don't think this blue wave is going to um, materialize, and I think we've got a permanent restructuring of the electorate in this country that may very well make the Democrats an obsolete party. Got to run out to a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about more about this um, RussiaGate Spygate scandal right after these messages.
so the mainstream media is down to the dregs of this whole so-called Russia Gate issue, and uh, and really for anybody that uh, is paying attention, it's qu- become quite clear that the real colluders uh, with Russia during the 2016 presidential elections were the Democrats. Not only the Democrats, but also our intelligence and law enforcement agencies, and and maybe more than anyone, the corporate media. And this latest um, non-story story that they're putting together about Michael Cohen saying that the president somehow knew beforehand that Donald Trump was going to meet with a Russian uh, lobbyist that was promising dirt on Hillary Clinton only reinforces that. I want to give a hat tip to uh, Willis Crumholtz over at the Federalists uh, because according to um, so-called sources with knowledge, as CNN likes to describe them, whatever that means, Michael Cohen is now prepared to tell the special prosecutor that Donald Trump knew in advance about this meeting at uh, Trump Tower with Don Jr. and uh, and Jared Kushner with this uh, this Russian um, lobbyist that was prom- promising dirt on Hillary Clinton. For those of uh, that belong to the religious cult of anti-Trump Russia collusion, uh, this meeting was uh, and has been cited again and again as evidence, solid evidence that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia to rig the 2016 elections. Really? This is really what they've got. And you know that uh, that prior to this, there was no collusion. Otherwise, Donald Trump wouldn't be meeting with some uh, Russian lobbyist promising dirt on Hillary Clinton. But this is one of the sacraments of this cult of Trump-Russia collusion that, that this meeting proves it. CNN's Chris Caliza called this anonymously sourced report a collusion bombshell and said it's maybe the most important event of Donald Trump's presidency, really, really. CNN has said this repeatedly over and over again. They have one, one bombshell after another, one story that's going to bring this president down between them and MSNBC. And the truth of this whole story doesn't matter. Uh, It doesn't matter at all whether Trump knew of this meeting or not or whether Mueller can prove that he did or not. Don Don Jr., Jared Kushner, and Manafort did absolutely nothing wrong setting up this meeting. But the events surrounding this meeting are truly damning for the intelligence agencies, the media, and the Democratic Party. You remember now that at the time of this meeting, the public didn't know that the Democratic National Committee had, uh, had their emails stolen. Only the DNC and the Clinton campaign knew of that. In early June of 2016, everyone on the Trump campaign, including Don Jr., was still hoping to discover the 30,000 emails that Hillary Clinton destroyed from her homebrew server while they were under subpoena. Clinton claimed, of course, that these emails were uh, personal, but she did not have the authority, or, or actually she broke the law when she destroyed uh, evidence before, while it was under subpoena, before it could be inspected by the governor, uh, I mean the government, the law enforcement agency, the Department of Justice. So wasn't it terrible that Don Jr. met with the Russians, despite what uh, David French over the National Review and uh, conservatives uh, Marco Rubio would tell you, no campaign in American history 
would have passed up the opportunity to receive dirt on their opponents. If a foreign government has dirt, you especially need to know and examine that dirt because if your opponent is elected, that dirt could uh, affect policy decisions. But there was uh, there's there's no proof that any of this ever panned out. And I say again, keep in mind that at the time, nobody knew that Russia had interfered in anything. It would be um, it would be grossly inappropriate to change American policy in return for receiving this dirt, but there was no evidence whatsoever that any of that ever happened. That doesn't stop old CNN over there from trying to breathe life into the, another um, so-called bombshell cadaver. Here's, uh, here's Jake Tapper breathlessly humping this Cohen flip story. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to begin with the politics lead and one of the biggest bombshells to date in the Russia investigation, reportedly coming... From the one said he would take a bullet for President Trump. Now, this bombshell goes right to the heart of this question, which I cannot say any better than the late Republican Senator Howard Baker said in 1973 as Watergate was consuming the nation. What did the president know and when did he know it? Now, remember, the, the subject of Watergate was at an, an actual burglary of the DNC National Committee. That was a crime. What's being talked about here? Even if they proved it, which they can't because it's not true, it's just Cohen trying to save his butt, was never a crime. And if colluding with a foreign government is a crime, then Hillary Clinton and the whole Clinton campaign and the DNC has got to go to jail because that's exactly what they engaged uh, Christopher Steele to do uh, during the 2016 election. What did the president know and when did he know it? In this case, the question is, what did President Trump know about Russian offers to help him win his election in 2016. Sources now telling CNN that his former fixer, Michael Cohen, claims that then-candidate Trump, despite his many denials since, knew in advance about that June 2016 Trump Tower meeting. And oh, by the way, Michael Cohen's repeated uh, denials prior to needing to uh, have something, anything, to give Robert Mueller to, to get his, his butt out of a crack with regard to his, uh, his uh, taxi businesses. Meeting between Donald Trump Jr., his son-in-law Jared Kushner, and former campaign chair Paul Manafort, in which a Russian government lawyer, one with ties to the Kremlin, was expected to offer dirt on Hillary Clinton. The president's former fixer is prepared to share those details with special counsel Robert Mueller, we're told. That's we're if told. Cohen's statement, and given his past, this is still a considerable if, if his statement is credible. Well, of course his cre statement's not credible. It contradicts everything that he said prior to this. But even more than that, we don't, we don't know if CNN's claims uh, on this story are credible or, or not. Uh, we know that Cohen has, as his lawyer now, Lanny Davis, who is a Clinton stooge, and he's doing everything he can to, to try to bring down the president. But if, if this is the best they've got, and I have no doubt that it is, otherwise they would uh, have tried to use something else, then it's another one of these giant nothing burgers, which is exactly what Rudy Giuliani, appearing on Chris Cromo's show on CNN, had to say. To your response to the headline, you did not look very impressed in the green room. <laughs> no, no, I expected something like this from Cohen. He's been lying all week. I mean, or, or for two, he's been lying for years. I mean, uh, the tapes that we have demonstrate any number of very serious lies by him back a year and a half ago, including his fooling people, hiding tape recordings, telling they weren't recorded, 
lying to their face, breaking faith with them, taping his client, which is a disbarable offense. I don't see how he has any credibility. I mean, this is basically if you had a trial, and there would be a trial here, but if you had a trial, you'd say, well, which lie do you want to pick? You want to pick the first lie, the second lie, or maybe some new lie? There's nobody that I know that knows him that hasn't warned me that if he's back is up against the wall, he'll, he'll lie like crazy because he's lied all his life. All right. So the flip on it is this. To do that to me, to tell me a lie, that's the media, you know, what's the recompense? To go to Bob Mueller and say, he knew I was in the meeting, he heard his son, puts his son in the mix. See, Cohen is in a, a, a quite a bind himself because he swore under oath before the Senate, uh, the congressional committees that Trump knew nothing about this. And now he proposes to go before Robert Mueller and say that he did. So either he committed perjury before her or he would be committing perjury before Robert Mueller. And that is if CNN's story has any validity to it at all, which uh, it may or may not. But the real bottom line in all of this is the the woman that they met with, Natalia Velenetskaya, was an actual operative for Fusion GPS, the same people that put together the dirty dossier. So more and more, it looks like if this thing were really examined and you drug uh, the relevant witnesses before uh, a grand jury, you would find out that this was an extension of this whole sting operation designed to frame the Trump campaign. I remind you that Velenitskaya met with Donald, with um, Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS both before and after she met with Don Jr. What do you think they were doing? Comparing notes? Well, what'd you do with Don Jr.? We're, we're out to get the Trump campaign. And all of this breathless reporting uh, counts on the idea that some of this is illegal, which none of it is. The only person in any legal jeopardy is, is Cohen because he's, uh, he's let Lanny Davis steer him around into uh, being caught in a perjury trap. Everybody said he wasn't terribly bright, and it turns out he's not. And, of course, the Department of Justice has a rule that you cannot indict a sitting president anyway. All of this is just more, um, more bogus stories from the enemy of the American people designed to hovel and, and, um, and delegitimize a sitting American president. I wish we had more time because we've got more to go over, but uh, join us back here again tomorrow night, and we'll pick it up right where we left off on America First Radio. Santa's dropping off way more than you expected this year. Thanks to Xfinity, the whole family can enjoy great coverage and fast, reliable internet speed up to gig, all at a great value. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, hmm, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details.